Hello and welcome back to Fearless Questions, where we follow our questions to freedom. I'm your host, Jeff Blackburn, and today on the podcast, we have the great pleasure of sharing a conversation with Michael Ware. Michael, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Good to be with you. It's good to have you. Um, Hey, Michael, just as we start out, let me give just a little bit of your official bio to people that might not be familiar with you. Um, You've heard it a thousand times, but that's okay. Michael is the founder of Public Square Strategies, and you're a leading expert and strategist at the intersection of faith, politics, and American public life. Um, You were one of President Obama's... um, Direct, you directed the faith outreach for his uh, historic 2012 re-election campaign. Uh, you were also one of the youngest White House staffers in modern American history. Uh, served in the White House on the Faith-Based Initiative. Um, you've also written for basically everyone in the world. You've written for The Atlantic, Christianity Today, USA Today, Relevant Magazine, and you've had your work basically featured everywhere else, the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, The New Yorker, and maybe most impressively, either MTV News or BuzzFeed, depending if the BuzzFeed gave you one of those little uh, quiz click, clickbait quizzes or not. <laughs> um, hey, Mike, so as we get just as we get going here, um, so people know, I, I ran into you recently. I followed your work, uh, read your book, but ran into you and basically literally bumped into you at the event in Indianapolis recently where you were the – guest speaker at an event put on by the Trinity Forum, uh, which is another national organization committed to creating space for civil conversations in the public square. Um, and I basically sort of assaulted you before you even got the front door asking you to come onto the podcast. So uh, thank you for forgiving me for that. But um, as we jump in here, maybe we should just start by telling people, tell people a little bit about the office that you were in uh, with the White House and uh, maybe just what that was about. Yeah, sure. So uh, the the Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships uh, is, uh, you know, really the the White House Faith Initiative. It's had different names under President George W. Bush. It now has a new name under President Trump. Uh, uh, But the office works to help uh, uh, provide resources to and partner with uh, religious and other nonprofit organizations to serve those in need. And so that's what that's what we did. That work happens through centers for faith-based and neighborhood partnerships that are in agencies across the federal government. So there's a center at the Department of Health and Human Services that works on issues like adoption and fatherhood and maternal health. There's a center at uh, FEMA that works with religious groups and others around disaster relief. And so um, that, that that's kind of the bulk of the work. The office also sits uh, under the Domestic Policy Council. And so uh, part of my job was helping to make sure that uh, the perspectives of the faith community, that the diverse pers- perspectives of the faith community uh, were uh, a part of policy conversations uh, and outreach in the White House. And, you know, it was an incredible honor uh, to serve, not just, you know, to, to serve in, you know, in the White House and to serve President Obama, but to serve with so many uh, people of faith who were living out their faith in, in powerful ways. Yeah. And you mentioned the different perspectives of people because the office itself was fairly new, right? And you, you sort of, I've heard you say there's actually different perspectives even on what that office represents. Is that fair? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, there were some open questions, 
you know, President George W. Bush really started the office in the White House. He was building off of work that President Clinton had done uh, during his presidency, but George W. Bush initiated the the White House faith-based office, and it was kind of an open question as to whether the office would be continued by a Democratic administration. Uh, uh, that was a, a question that Barack Obama put to bed when in August of 2008, after he had uh, wrapped up the primary nomination, he gave a speech in Zanesville, Ohio, where he uh, committed to continuing the faith-based office. Um, but it's uh, the office, uh, you know, in the history of the office has, has definitely had ups and downs. It's definitely, um, you know, something that uh, uh, now th- this current administration is is trying to figure out. Uh, you know what what the future of the office will be, but uh, I was really proud of the work that 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 we did and 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 what we accomplished in partnership with the faith community. Hmm. Um, well, there's a few things with that. Um, one, I'm, this this as we kind of at the beginning here, I'd love to just kind of um, give people a sense a little bit of what you of what you face while you're there, because when you're when you're part of the you know the faith based initiative. Um, and I don't even know what is that the OFBNP? Did you guys had to have a shorter? Or, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> what did you what you call yourself there? Yeah, we, we you know I I just call it the faith based office, but we'd go with OFBNP, uh, uh, so, some uh, you know faith based initiative. But but yeah, it was it, it's a mouthful. Government's not too good at uh you know coming up with snappy uh, uh, office headings. Yeah, I was gonna say most of the stuff you see in the news, emails and things, always had like just two letters, and I was like, you poor guys had this awfully long acronym. <laughs> but uh, no, but um, you know you could be it was how well received was it within the scope of the rest of of you know the administration that you were part of because it's a big i mean this administration is always a, a ton of people right and um how is that received within you know the office itself like you said sometimes like what role is it going to play how were you received amongst the rest of the administration yeah you know what what helps is you know the president cared about it and so you know just three weeks not even into the administration uh the president was uh, holding an Oval Office ceremony, uh, describing his plans for the office, signing an executive order, uh, es- establishing some of the changes that he was going to make, uh, uh, actually expanding the office. And so, you know, because the president made it such a priority uh, and, and really put himself out in front of it, uh, that, you know, that, that, that's really a pretty clear message to folks, uh, to, to, uh, you know, to fall, fall in line. And, you know, we had amazing relationships across the federal government, uh, and, you know, in the West wing and, uh, in the agencies to get our, our work done. Uh, when we first started, the head of the domestic policy council was Melody Barnes and Melody, uh, was just someone who had a deep understanding of of the faith community and the role the faith-based organizations play in the social fabric of this country. And so Melody was, you know, an incredible partner for us to have. And as we were setting up the initiative, you know, uh, under a Democratic administration for the first time. And so, um, you know, there, there were certainly, um, b- because of uh, the, the reputation the office had under uh, the Bush administration, uh, and because of the challenges we were facing as a nation when we, uh, when President Obama came into office, mm-hmm. uh, uh, it, it, those certainly offered um, some challenges. But the, the president really invited us to uh, 
look at how the office could be a part of tackling some of those principal challenges. So, for instance, uh, you know, when we came into office uh, in the midst of a major economic crisis, we asked questions like what can uh, partnering with the faith community do to address uh, uh, unemployment, for instance, and that led to us creating uh, thousands of job clubs across the country where faith-based organizations would host really kind of job summits uh, using you know the unique relational capital that houses of worship have have available to them to you know address a, a really principal challenge and so you know it, it was a fascinating uh, fascinating op- opportunity and uh, you know we were grateful to to have. Uh, you know, partners across the government, and, and more importantly, in the faith community that were that were ready to do this work. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, one of the things that, um, and I, I hope I mentioned that in the in the outs the beginning. I don't know if I mentioned or not. I hope the your latest book, Reclaiming Hope: uh, Lessons Learned in the Obama White House about the future of faith in America. Um, fantastic book. Um, I'm going to just. I'll get through we'll get through a few stories in it, but recommend highly people get it because you're going to get some tremendous insight behind the scenes of how this stuff really looks. It's never as simple um, as it, as it looks on the TV and the newscast or the, on the computer. But one of the things I did want to say, thank you at the beginning, because this, your work was just an incredibly even handed uh, in the way you described the president's faith and the way he operated in the white house. And I just, I just found that really, really compelling because it it felt more transparent and authentic, the stories, because it didn't feel like, you know, it was uh, sort of rose colored glasses or or the opposite if you didn't like them kind of thing. But um, so I want to say thank you, first of all, for that. Um, I did want to say one of the things, you know, um, and I know I'm sort of asking you to answer on behalf of the president, but which is impossible, I suppose. But um, his faith you're in the office of faith, but his faith was like always being argued about in the public. And that's a long conversation. I know, but uh, sometimes a very silly conversation, but um, you mentioned that he had this lack of patience um, for people like with a faith without works. And I just wondered if you could elaborate on this at all. Cause I, I think that's, that was a really interesting um, perspective. Yeah. I mean, so it kind of just brushes up against, how he was really introduced uh, in a personal way to to religion and to Christianity. Uh, you know, he, he came to faith after – well, so first I should say a lot of people don't realize – everyone knows that he was a community organizer. What a lot of people don't realize is that uh, his job as a community organizer was funded by the Catholic Church. Uh, he, he was, and he was organizing specifically among churches. I mean, so there are a lot of different sort of organizing models uh, of, of you know visions for how you organize communities and that kind of thing. Uh, he specifically signed up for an organization that was that had a very specific and and uh, you know. Uh, uh, vision of organizing, which was working directly with churches. And so uh, he's on the south side of Chicago uh, doing this doing this work and what was really his, his first uh, substantive job. Uh, and, you know, he recounts in both his, his memoir and in some of his speeches, you know, the fact that he was, uh, he got to see up close the view that uh, faith and uh, religious communities had in the lives of of people, particularly those who were uh, those who were in need, those who were um, uh, those who were uh, uh, in in places that needed help. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and so I think that's 
and it was through that experience that he says that uh, he committed his life to Christ uh, in, in a personal way. And so, I, I, you know, when when that's your faith story, uh, then I think, you know, something sort of brushes up against that when what was what drew you to the faith was um, how it can motivate incredible uh, uh, service and action. And then when you see uh uh, when when you see that not motivating the same thing in others, yeah, yeah there's a little disconnect there. <laughs> huh. You know, um, you know, one of the things. Well, first of all, as working in that department, I <laughs> speaking of titles that you had, one of the funny ones that I thought I don't know if it was official, but you sounds like you were the official church shopper of the president, right? Um, I mean, I'm guessing, guessing that wasn't that. Yeah, I'm guessing that wasn't on your radar growing up. Um, but when it comes to a president's public faith, there is a lot, you know, it, there's a lot to consider, right? When it comes to like, it's not as easy to, to go to church or it's not as easy to just go do things like many people, you know, th think it would be. Um, yeah. Well, so yeah, I mean, I, I talk about that a bit in the book. Uh, uh, so, uh, so, so yeah, so I was. Uh, I was one of the people who was, um, as they came to D.C., uh, helping them think through uh, churches in the area. When Before the president took office, he went to a church, 19th Street Baptist, which is a historic, uh, historic and historically uh, African-American congregation in D.C. And I, I recount in the book the, that – uh, word had gotten out that the president would be coming. <laughs> and so, you know, I show up at, you know, four or five in the morning uh, the next day and there are, you know, tourists lined up outside of this <laughs> church. Uh, you know, I'm seeing, you know, like a guy in, you know, a Hawaiian, you know, shirt, uh, you know, clearly not a regular <laughs> attender of, of this, of this congregation. Right. And it, uh. it it causes real problems. So, you know, we had circumstances where, uh, you know, uh, uh, regular attendees of uh, churches the president would visit would be displaced by tourists. So people who, yeah. who, you know, worship somewhere every Sunday all of a sudden couldn't get into their own their own church. Um, you know, people don't mm. realize or think about, you know, th this means that there have to be mag uh, magnetometers outside the church and that everyone attending the church has to be seated, uh, you know, 45 minutes or whatever before the service. I, I don't know what your experience is at your church, yeah. uh, but uh, not too many people are getting the service 45 minutes before. Oh, my goodness. No, it's all we can. Every church nowadays, it's just you need police by the children's wing, and that seems to slow things down enough, much less uh, getting, a, getting a president in there. Um, yeah, and so yeah, so I I mean, there's a lot more detail there, and I, yeah. I try and walk people through it in 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 the book just to get a sense of what it means, um, you know, when the president attends church or when the president goes anywhere. It's yeah. not just the president attending; it's the it's the institution of the presidency. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, just uh, thinking about what that what that means is is it, it's important. <laughs> it, it is fun to to read about. People have to do that too. Uh, it does kind of paint a much different picture of the everyday life of, of the president in the White House. Um, you know, Michael, one of the things that you talked about having to do in your job was to promote interfaith dialogue and cooperation, yeah. um, which is something that resonates deeply with what we do here with Fearless Questions. But um, I wonder how hard or, or easy it was, you know, for you to find like true cooperation 
um, with the diversity of faith communities that are represented in, in the United States. I mean, that I just wonder how how was that to to try and pull off? Well, you know, it it wasn't that difficult. Uh, when people talk about interfaith cooperation, uh, sometimes what they mean or what they think that has to mean is, oh, let's get you know people of different religious backgrounds in a room and. Uh, see how long they could talk about their religious differences <laughs> without getting upset with one another. <laughs> that wouldn't right? take very long. <laughs> and it, 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 well, sometimes it doesn't take very long. It's also like, you know, to a certain extent, you know, what's what's the point? Uh, especially yeah. from the government's perspective. Uh, so you know, when we did interfaith cooperation, it wasn't about getting a whole bunch of sort of academics in a room to talk about their different views of uh, uh, different theological topics. Uh, we wanted to uh, put, uh, help different religious communities, uh, uh, work together on concrete projects. Uh, so it's not getting a room and talk about your different theologies. It's, it's getting a room and talk about how you could serve the, the community that you're all a part of, that you all love, that you all have resources to, to bring to bear. And so one of the leading sort of areas of that work was, uh, we launched the President's Campus Service Challenge, Interfaith Campus Service Challenge, and we saw by the time we were we were done with it, hundreds and hundreds of universities and colleges, some of uh, some you know state schools that had you know uh, religious uh, campus organizations, but then also uh, a bunch of uh, Christian schools that would partner with. Uh, uh, houses of worship and organizations from different faiths that surrounded their campus community uh, to, to do service work. So we had, uh, uh, we had universities that were uh, doing interfaith service projects to uh, renovate schools. Uh, we had uh, projects around combating human trafficking, uh, all, all kinds of amazing, inspiring work uh, that, you know, involved Muslim and secular and Christian and Jewish and uh, Hindu and Buddhist and, you know, uh, down the line, all the different Christian denominations uh, uh, that, that were that were doing incredible work uh, that, that uh, you know, and, and then the interfaith understanding happens. It's it's a lot easier to, to see the humanity of people who think differently than you do uh, when you're side by side with them helping to build a house with Habitat for Humanity than when a bunch of people tell you, okay, sit on the opposite ends of the table and uh, and share what you think about the divinity of Jesus, you know? <laughs> like that, that's, that, that's maybe not the best starting point. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. Did you get a better chance to, to do that, like to interact with people on the street level more than others in the administration, you think? I do. You know, there's always a certain amount of, um, distance that just is going to be there because there's so much work and, yeah. you know, part, but because I was in the faith-based initiative, because my job was, uh, to be working with and be able to, uh, communicate on behalf of a uh, religious groups, uh, you know, every day was spent, uh, either on the ground or in, you know, serious conversations with, 
uh, with with faith uh, leaders and uh, you know at the grassroots about what was going on in their communities, and so it did. It, it helped provide me personally with some grounding, and then I, I think it also helped uh, sort of make sure that the office's work was you know directly linked to you know what what was happening in communities and not just sort of a a DC sort of beltway kind of thing. Yeah. Well, well, Michael, you're, the number of projects you listed there was is just overwhelming. Actually, I can't imagine the number of how you spend that many plates at once or try and keep track of that many plates at once. I'm sure there's a lot of people involved, but um, it's such a positive. There's so many positive programs. There's so much energy happening and all that. But in your book, you used a couple of words that I was interested by. You used the words like anxiety and heartbreak in regards to your work in the government. And like I said, these aren't the type of words you hear on the evening news in regards to government workers. Um, so what types of things were, would bring up those kind of emotions for you, you know? Yeah, well, look, so it's, um, well, on the anxiety piece, I mean, it's just, it's just a, uh, it's, it's incredibly busy. Uh, uh, it's, it's, uh, you know, there is a, uh, there is a sense that sort of everything falls on your plate when you're in a position like that. And so, you know, for instance, we had a, uh, there was a pastor down in Florida who said, who made a big deal of the fact that he was going to burn uh Quran and, uh, and, you know, different, you know, yeah. international leaders got involved. There were, there were, you know, all kinds of, uh, there were all kinds of consequences that uh, could have flowed out from from something like that. So and, they you send know, you they send you down in a fire suit to put a stop to it. Is that how that works? I, but, well, so right, it's at the it's like uh, you know, like it's just at the end of the day, it's just some some dude out in Florida. Yeah. Uh, but when you're at the White House, you know that that ends up on your plate, uh, uh, and so uh, you know, feeling that sort of. Uh, uh, that sort of pressure, you know, on a personal level, I think I got better at it as, uh, as, as time went on, but definitely there's just some, uh, you, you feel the pressure and, and the responsibility and some of that's healthy and some of it is not and being able to sort through, sort through some of that is important. And, and then, you know, I just say, uh, as we're seeing now, there are just intense divisions in our country and many of them uh, involve, sort of the intersection of government and religion uh, and, and faith and politics. And, you know, th there were a lot of sort of controversies that uh, that could have happened that, that never came to light because of uh, for a number of reasons. But but some of the controversies that, that did play out, uh, no really, no matter how they turn out, they're just heartbreaking because they expose, um, you know, a great deal of of uh dissension and and conflict that obviously you know you wish wasn't wasn't there and so yeah i mean there's just there's just heartbreak and, and then i just say um you know finally th there's just uh and this is kind of a combination of the first two points i i raised which is um uh, you know I, I think about the shooting at newtown i think about the shooting in in Aurora, I think of natural disasters that hit, uh, mm -hmm. and and that is sort of the the human heartbreak that that um, that maybe you don't think about 
uh, or, or, or maybe sort of uh, people who think about politics uh, through like a John Stewart daily daily show kind of lens or, t- you know, late night talk show lens don't necessarily think about when they think of uh, uh, people working in government <laughs> like that uh, the, 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 you can't. Um, you can't turn off the news in that way. Uh, yeah. uh, it's, it, you can't separate yourself. It, it's actually your job to, uh, to, to, to dig as deep as you can into, in, into those kinds of tragedies. And, and, uh, and, you know, there's definitely, definitely heartbreak involved there. Yeah. You know, you, um, at different points in the book, I remember you talked about, um, cause you're talking about the real people involved in politics. I mean, this isn't just, you know, uh, I can't remember the exact word you use, maybe avatar or something, but, um, these are real people and we speak very flippantly about them and their lives and critique them with such, I mean, just venom, um, in both directions. And, um, you know, you talked, I know one of the people's Oz against, cause I'm familiar with Oz as well, but, um, you had a counterpart in the Republican campaign as well, I think, um, during the election at least, but you made a, there was a quote that you shared. It said in politics today, a commitment to civility is viewed by many politicians and strategists as amounting to unilateral disarmament. And yeah. I, I just wanted to lean into that for a second. Cause um, you know, I, I just wonder what you would say about that. Cause that struck me as just really powerful. Yeah. You know, it's uh, you know, you, you, you talk to uh, political actors, politicians, advocates, you know, about something like civility and, and, you know, there'd be all this obfuscation there, you know, basically this idea of, Oh, I, you know, I, I'd love to be civil if only the other side would be, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, un, until that point, uh, how, how can we possibly leave uh, any tool uh, that could be politically effective, you know, off the table um uh, how, how could we how how could we leave something like incivility off the table if it's just going to be an advantage for the other side? And you know, there's there's a practical argument to be made, which is uh, uh, in in the long term, I I don't think this this you know soul crushing politics that we have right now is going to turn out too well for its practitioners. Um, but you know, to go to the the moral and the ethical. Uh, is that really how, how you want to win? And, 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 and at, at what point do, uh, do the ends not justify the means? And those are questions that, um, that, uh, political actors themselves have to ask, but that we as citizens, as voters need to ask too often, we're willing to excuse the worst kind of politics as long as it's done, uh, for, uh, reasons that we agree with and we need to start holding our politicians accountable not just to holding the quote unquote you know right positions but to advancing those positions in a way that's life-giving and not uh not contributing to the to the uh, you know the the discord that we have present in our in our country right now yeah you know there's um there's a couple of things that brings to mind one is um I wouldn't dare trying to capture this entire, it was at least an entire chapter, maybe more. You, you talked about uh, president Obama's evolution on gay marriage. Um, but something that came, so people would just need to read it. Cause that's a fascinating chapter as well. Um, but something in that chapter jumped out at me. Be, and you just mentioned this thing about, you know, is the, 
does the you know the outcome justify the means sort of thing. Um, but what I'm wondering is just as a you know as a private citizen, um, how do you help people understand like when when there's someone that you hold like a lot of respect and genuine affinity um, for the posture of someone's heart, a leader's heart, their vision. How do we how do we hold that together um, from other perspectives? You know that might lead us to cynicism, like when it's just about power. Like, is there? And I guess from where I'm sitting, is it one of those things where somebody's in power, like they're left with no other, like for them to do anything, is to just choose the lesser of two evils? Or like when you say hold them to account, um, I'm trying to figure out what is a, you know, what can I justifiably even hold a president or a or a senate leader, you know, to account when I don't really even understand what options they have in front of them. That's a convoluted question, but does that make sense at all? Oh, a- absolutely. So, you know, I think it's. Um... I think first, you know, having a humility that that you don't know sort of everything, everything that um, went into a particular uh, decision often um, and and understanding that. But, you, you know, something I write about in the book is the idea that, you know, uh, humility is not just uh, understanding that you may be wrong about something, but it's also having sort of in, in your perspective, the sense that uh, when you do act, the weight of the world is not on your shoulders. And, and uh, if if you're wrong, it's not the worst thing in the world. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like, like, like humility actually gives us the space to act, uh, not just sort of uh, a sense of caution when we do. Um, both sides of humility in that way uh, are important. So, you know, what it looks like to hold politicians to account, uh, you know, I'd say a few things. One, we should be um, we should be looking to uh, make sure that we're holding politicians that we agree with. Uh, people in our own political party, uh, people that, uh, that, uh, you know, share, uh, aspects of, uh, our background with us to account in, in, I think a particularly focused way, uh, uh, as Democrats, Democrats need to hold their leaders, uh, to account as opposed to what we have now, which is a tribalism, which, uh, which excuses things from your own people, <laughs> from your own party, yeah. uh, while, while piling on to the same things in the other. Actually, I think it should be opposite. I mean, it's kind of obvious that you, uh, if you're a Democrat, it's kind of obvious that you don't agree with, with Republicans. Uh, it's kind of obvious that you, you're a Democrat for a reason or a Republican for a reason if you are a Republican. Uh, and, and that should motivate you to feel a, a, a kind of special accountability um, to, to uh, uh, you know, to check your own, your own party and your own personal, uh, your own personal instincts. Uh, so you, you do touch on something that's important, though, which is, as political technology and just the 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 functions of uh, of government become more uh, complicated, more sophisticated, I am concerned about sort of how uh, how difficult it makes it makes it for the average citizen to engage civically. Yeah. and so for policymakers, one of the 
one of the most important things we need to do right now uh, is address the processes of government. So, for instance, it's very difficult to encourage people to um, uh, to engage politically to address grievances rather than through violence or uh, through uh, through sort of uh, extra legal uh, mechanisms if uh, you have governments, state governments around the country that are explicitly trying to deny uh, citizens voting rights. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's uh, it's very difficult to encourage civic participation uh, if you have a system of campaigns and elections that are specifically set up to privilege some people, some people and disempower others. And so, uh, and so I think that's an important piece that we need to look at. We need to do a, uh, an analysis of the health of democratic institutions and make sure that democratic institutions are functioning properly. If we really do want to call people back to sort of civil, uh, political disagreement, well, they need to have trustworthy mechanisms uh, through which to 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 do that, or else they're obviously going to go outside of the political system for those those kinds of uh, engagements. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a you've sparked like three questions I have no time for, but all I can think of is growing up with the little Bill on Capitol Hill singing to me about trying to become a law, but and it doesn't <laughs> doesn't seem like it's that simple these days. Um, you know, along the lines of um, you know what you're saying with the with the approach that people are the um, tribalism, the way that people are, you know, in our, in the private sector, um, we all kind of know that for the most part, the leaders that we really respect and like are usually pretty self-aware, you know, and, but like you said, in the party, sometimes it's just blind. We hate everything they do, no matter if it's good or not. And they hate everything we do. Um, One of the things I've seen is that uh, there seems to be this increasing because of that. And yet, a lot of people are not unless they're really committed to one particular network of news or something. And they find themselves like a Facebook, you know, algorithm forcing them further and further into like, um, you know, all the same views, the people that I, that I encounter that are trying to be really thoughtful about things, um, start, it seems they're starting to describe themselves as more independent and in large part, because like I said, it's, it's harder. It seems more and more difficult to identify with one particular political party um, in so many ways, some people are just stepping away from politics altogether. And I I wonder if you could share with us what you think um, the value of that is or is not, maybe the impact of all of that. Yeah, you know, so this is, it was actually surprising to me as I've been traveling the country talking about uh, Reclaiming Hope, my book, and, and uh, uh, having conversations with people. Uh, I, as you know, I take on a lot of sort of controversial topics in my book uh you know the the, the presidency of Barack Obama is, is still a, a hot topic and yeah. uh the thing i get the most pushback on the most controversial thing apparently that i write in <laughs> uh in the book is is this pushback against uh the growing trend of uh identifying and registering as an independent uh, <laughs> You know, this this is basically maybe three or four paragraphs in my in my book. And I'll, I'll be honest, the pushback I've received has only made me feel more confident <laughs> about, about what, what I what I wrote. And this and, is the most controversy for a book that includes issues of abortion, contraception mandate, yeah. um, you know, all those kinds of things like and That's this right. is the thing. Hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, basically, the argument is. 
um, we have the highest percent, the highest percentage of Americans uh, that have ever identified as independent is, is right now. Forty three percent of Americans identify as politically independent. Wow. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, right there should be an indication that uh, the, the promise of indep- uh, of becoming independent as some sort of like healing bomb to our politics. Well, if that was going to happen, then uh, we have more independents than Democrats or Republicans. And so, uh, so you're saying it, it's not working. It's 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 not working. And, mm. and one of the reasons it's not working is it actually drains our political parties of the balancing influences that that they need. Our political parties right now are basically left with just the true believers, the people who don't disagree with any dot or tittle of the uh, of the party platform, because all these independents have left the parties because uh because they're sick of how polarized they are. Well, mm. they only get more polarized if if you leave. <laughs> you're mm. only you're you're leaving the parties to the uh, the most strident voices, and uh, and and that's not helpful. What what we need right now, uh, as I indicated, you know, before, are Democrats who are proud to be Democrats, uh, who who attend local party meetings, who nevertheless are willing to push that party. Uh, on positions it disagrees with uh, or th- that they disagree with. And the same for Republicans. And uh, I think our political system is, is really suffering from a, a lack of people who are willing to engage and commit to institutions that they have disagreements with. And we're seeing that across society. This isn't just a, a political issue. This is happening in religion. This is happening in uh, institutions like like marriage, uh, we're seeing a sort of institutional withdrawal uh, that I don't think is is bearing good fruit. Let me ask you an impossible but short question. So that's not bad. Um, when it comes to, I hear you saying, you know, pick a party and get in there and and uh, be a voice of reason within your party. Um, how would somebody, if someone was trying to pick right now, they if you're one of that forty some percent, you said that finds himself independent. Um, do you have any suggestions for what might make them lean towards one or the other to start? I mean, because you're sort of an anomaly in that you're a, and I'm, I don't mean to label you, but I think that you're a Democrat that that holds some conservative positions in other ways. And so sometimes people don't even know what category to fit you in. Um, yeah. do, should we just be looking for the character of the leader more than the party? Or do we start with the party and find the character people? What, what do you suggest? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's... Um... Uh, I, I released around the last election and will probably release around uh, these midterms an, an updated version of uh, basically five questions that people should ask when they're thinking about voting. And I think similar questions can be applied to political parties. Uh, I, I think that people can uh, really – we've been overly burdening these kinds of decisions with, with a with a weight that is not justified by uh, the effect that they have on individual level. So so if you are uh, let let me give you an example. If if you are a person who uh, has uh, works at a um, international development agency um, or you know uh, has uh, uh, has has family that's benefited from 
from international aid dollars, then you're probably, if that's a central part of your story, uh, then you're probably not going to want to be a part of a, a party that opposes international aid. You know, if, if, if you're spending your, uh, your volunteer hours, uh, uh, you know, on uh, immigrant uh, legal aid for immigrants, uh, then you're probably not going to want to uh, want to, you know, join a party that's uh, making the lives of the people that you serve more, more difficult. Now that, now that doesn't, uh, so people can really use their personal stories. What, what issues are uh, uh, drive them uh, and, and, you know, uh, choose candidates, uh, choose parties based in part uh, on that, uh, as opposed to feeling like you have to, uh, uh, like every vote you cast and every, um, every uh, you know, your decision about which party to join is supposed to solve every problem there is. That, that just isn't going to happen. And, and that kind of burdening of these decisions is part of what's driving people to become independents because they just think, well, I, I agree with this party on, on these issues, disagree with, well, jo join the party that feels like the <laughs> best fit and, and, and consider it a part of your obligation uh, to push – to push the party you join on the issues that you don't agree with them on. Yes. You know, like, it's, like it's really not that big of a. <laughs> <laughs> now it does lead to, I mean, we it's not, it's not perfect, little, right? We need to add a little bit of levity yeah. and frankly, a, a little bit of, um, a, a, a little bit of ambivalence, particularly when it comes to sort of the, the self, uh, the aspect of politics that is sort of, um, self-involved <laughs> like the yeah. the self-focused part <laughs> like uh we should be entering politics uh, out of love for our neighbors and our communities uh and thinking much less about sort of uh uh how political engagement sort of <laughs> makes us feel and if if we're if we feel inspired by this candidate or that candidate uh whether we feel you know personally fulfilled by our uh, by our you know uh, our registration with this with this party like but yeah. politics isn't meant for that yeah. <laughs> and, and you, you need to be seeking some of those some of those things elsewhere <laughs> true true and i do i do want to i was joking but you do mention that by doing so so you do you also got one of your other um, unofficial titles was an apostate right you became an apostate catholic for some of the ways that you were operating too well, so, well, so, so that is, um, so I, I grew up in a, uh, I grew up in a, uh, Catholic. So the story here, and, <laughs> I didn't mean to throw you under the bus. I just thought, you know, when we try and like, when we try and be open and find civil ground, sometimes the folks that we, they were like, Hey, we're on your team. They're like, no, you're not on our team anymore. Oh, wait, yes, I am. Well, no, that, that, that's not exactly. So, so here's, so when I was, uh, when I was announced as running the, um, the uh, religious outreach for the president's reelection campaign. Uh, the, the story had included uh, that I was raised in a Catholic family, and and uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I I'm an evangelical now. I I attend a, a Protestant church, and so for uh, a certain uh, sort of uh, according to some people, uh, Catholic doctrine is that uh, an apostate is just the term for a 
for a person who was born into a Catholic family who doesn't consider themselves to be Catholic anymore. Uh, and so uh, and so some far right, you know, a Catholic website said, you know, Obama's campaign hires a Catholic. A Catholic <laughs> uh, and, and so, yeah, that didn't quite. It didn't quite go over too well. In <laughs> you get home and you tell your your wife, "Hey, honey, uh, got news for you. You're married to a to an apostate." So, <laughs> um, hey, uh, you know, as there's so many things we can talk about. One of the um, just one of the last few questions here is that, um, you know, you talk about. I mean, obviously, the title of the book is "Reclaiming Hope," um, but but you are, and you might have kind of alluded to it earlier too. Is like, but you talked about not putting our hope into politics. Um, but yet you're also you're saying, well, we're not supposed to put our hope in it. You do are sort of calling citizens into into participation. Is that fair enough? That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, well, tell me this. We here at Fearless Questions, you know, our, our big thing is, um, you know, perfect love drives out fear. Scripture says, but we kind of think that the opposite can be true too. Is that uh, fear has a way of chasing love out of the room. And so um, we're always trying to just be open to whatever questions are out there, you know? And so as we sort of head up to the end here, what's, what are the questions you wish more people were asking? You know, I think, um, I think, I think that question of, you know, what is, what is driving, what is motivating my view of politics and my political engagement or lack thereof um am i entering politics um driven primarily by my fears and sort of my my resentments um am i am i going to politics to try and uh, fill some sense of security some some emotional need that i really should be going elsewhere to fill um, these kinds of questions are very difficult to to ask and, and I, I really generally recommend people um, ask them of themselves and not of, of others yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but it's important to ask ask yourself these questions and, yeah. and, and to make sure that um, make sure that you're not sort of going to politics uh, um, to, 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 to fill some, sp- some spiritual needs that are better, better left filled uh, elsewhere. And, and what will happen if enough of us ask those kinds of questions uh, is that politics will, you know, lose power over our emotional lives, which it, it shouldn't have control over anyways, but it will actually, um, gain strength in the way it's able to tackle the limited, discrete, uh, material circumstances of Americans' lives and, and uh, the lives of those who, Amer- who American policy touches in a way that's a lot, a lot healthier. Uh, the, the, the problem in America right now is not that we take politics too seriously, but, but that we take politics seriously in all of the wrong ways. Mm. Uh, and so making sure that we're taking politics seriously in the right way uh, is one of the most important questions that we could be asking ourselves right now. Wow, that's great. That's great. Uh, Michael, really appreciate your time. The, um, the book is Reclaiming Hope. 
Um, and this really is, I, I can't encourage my listeners enough. It's uh, whether you're Republican, Democrat, or one of those 40 some percent of independents, um, this is a great, great um, introduction and behind the scenes look at where faith really does intersect politics in our lives. And it's, it's worth your time and energy to, to look through it. Michael, can't thank you enough for your time and for what you're doing out there trying to, uh, to move things forward with civil conversation as well. Um, and so um, where's the best place for people to follow along with what you do? Yeah. So uh, just my website, michaelwearwear.com. And then also uh, I'm pretty active on Twitter. I I haven't figured out Snapchat yet. (laughs) Instagram is is pretty limited for me, basically uh, uh, family pictures and pictures of of travels. But but Twitter, I'm pretty active on. And and, uh, my handle there is just Michael R. Ware. Uh, that's Michael R. Ware, W-E-A-R, uh, and would love to be in conversation with folks there. Okay, very good. Michael, it's been a, ch- it's been a, a great pl- privilege, and uh, I hope we get a chance to talk to you in the future. Great. Hey, thank you so much, Jeff. Really appreciate it.